This has been a, an eventful week for the people who live in this part of the world, especially if you're a sports fan and, you know, the Astros winning the World Series. I never thought I'd live to see the day. And I'm so, so glad to be able to get to bed at a normal time again. But I thought it was really interesting. So the, the Astros won on Wednesday night, Game 7, and the same night we had a young woman get saved in our student ministry, accepted Christ right there in Hooper Chapel. And I thought about the contrast of those two things and how, yeah, baseball's great, and I love the Astros, and I love those guys, and you know, I want to adopt Jose Altuve as my little brother or something, but um, you know, all of Houston turned out for that celebration on Friday. I'm so glad I wasn't trapped in downtown with all those millions of people, but it was so incredible to watch. But think about, think about the people and the angels and the Lord Himself in heaven that same night and the rejoicing that went on within His gates that made our parade and our celebration look ridiculous. Think about the eternity that was changed. One person and how they're still celebrating and how a championship is fantastic. But in a hundred years, no one will remember that. But for all eternity, we'll remember that young woman who came home to God. Isn't it amazing what God does? And we, we have the privilege of being part of that. We're not bystanders. We're not just sitting back and saying, well, let's let God work. He works through us. And that's what this series is about that we're in right now, about living a contagious life and, and the different ways in which God uses us. Some of us, by nature, we're just bold, confrontational, outgoing people. And so for us, like we talked about a couple of weeks, when Peter stood up in front of thousands of people and, and just hit them straight, in, straight between the eyes with, you guys, you people crucified the Son of God, and God raised him up from the dead, and he's coming back to judge you again someday. And 3,000 people said, well, what, what can we do to make up for that? And he said, accept Christ and be baptized. And, and so if you're that personality type, you think, yeah, I could do that. And some of you could, and some of you do. And all of us, at some times, we need to have that bulldog mentality of, I'm going to tell you the truth about the Lord. I don't care whether you want to hear it or not. I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to see what you have to say. I'm not going to leave until you tell me yes or no. That confrontational approach is sometimes needed. Life or death situation. Sometimes, like we talked about last week, we're more like the blind man who, got, who, who was restored to sight and came to know Christ. That was the first time he'd ever met Jesus. He didn't know anything about the Bible. All he knew was, once I was blind and now I can see. And sometimes we're like that, where all we know to do is tell our story. Some of us are good at that. All of us should do it. And that's what I challenged you last week, is everyone who knows you well ought to know your story of how you came to know Christ and what kind of change he's made in your life. But there's another way, and that's what we want to talk about today. Like a lot of you, the week after Hurricane Harvey, I found myself doing some physical labor I don't usually do. Uh, we were in the home of uh, some, uh, some people down in RP and River Plantation who weren't members of this church, but they were connected to some members of our church. And I was there at first. It was just me and three other people, Al and Carolyn Waldo, who are members of this church, and then this guy named John. John was uh, a friend of the family who just happened to show up. He didn't know the rest of us were going to be there. Later on, we got more help. We got a whole crew from the church showed up, including some of you who are here this morning, um, and they mudded out that whole house. But right at first, 
Uh, me and John were doing a lot of heavy lifting. Now, John is a little bit older than me and not quite as big as me. So um, we were kind of a funny-looking pair of uh, you know, heavy movers carrying out all this waterlogged furniture and jump, dumping it out in the front lawn. And, and John was not a believer, is not a believer in Christ. And he came to understand that the reason I was there and Al and Carolyn were there is because we're Christians and we felt like God was leading us to be there in the home of these people we'd never met before. And um, so that, that sort of sparked some conversation. And we'll talk in a couple of weeks about how being involved in ministry and meeting people's needs is going to open doors, and that is a way of sharing your faith. Well, on that day, he, he decided, John started talking to me about his beliefs. And, and, you know, I'm always of the opinion that that is an open door, that God does not, that, that people don't just naturally think of spiritual issues. They don't think about God. They don't think about heaven, eternal life. They don't think about spiritual truth unless the Holy Spirit is stirring their heart. Even if what they're saying to me is totally different from what the Bible teaches, I think you wouldn't be talking about this right now if, if it wasn't that God was speaking into your heart right now and stirring up this spiritual curiosity. So my philosophy, what I've always believed, and I get this from Henry, Henry Blackaby and Experiencing God, is if you hear somebody who's talking about spiritual things, you don't leave until the conversation is done. You, you stay and answer any question you have to answer and, and talk as long as they want to talk because that is an opportunity. Now, you might expect me to say, and then I said, here's what the Bible says about Jesus Christ and here's how to know him. Here's how to be forgiven of your sins and, and experience a relationship with the God who made you, but I didn't. And the reason why is John basically led with the statement that I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe it's true. I know what it teaches, but I don't agree with it. You know, he's, he had done some reading and he had read some sources that convinced him that uh, the scriptures, the origins of the scriptures were not reliable. And so it wouldn't have done any good for me to hit him with a confrontational approach of, hey, here's, here's what the Bible teaches. That would have been, that would have been essentially saying to, you, to him, I haven't heard a word you've said. I just have a pre-planned uh, presentation that I have to give to you, which would have driven him away. And I could have told him my story. Hey, let me tell you about how I met Jesus and the difference he's made in my life. But I've done that in the past with people just like John. And their response is usually something like, well, that's nice for you. I don't believe a word of it, but I, you know, that's fine. If that works for you, you just stick with it. What he needed, what I believe he was doing, was expressing to me some real, serious, intellectual objections he had toward faith. And what my job was as a believer right then was to hear him to listen and to respond in a way that displayed, I hear you and I understand. I just, I just know that what I know is true. I just know that my God is real and that He really has saved me and He really can save you. He, he needed to see a believer who could handle objections and not get defensive and not shut down and not get argumentative and walk away. You know, at the end of the day, we, we shook hands and walked away and, and uh, you know, he said, well, you're a good guy. You're a lot better than most religious people I know. And I appreciated that. And I, I, I said, we need to get together again. And I tried to set something up and he really wasn't interested. But I said, well, give me a call when you're ready. I'd love to talk some more. And I think it was a fruitful conversation. I think that's all we can do. That's what we're called to do. Because some people, some people come to God and they don't have a gap in knowledge. They're not just sitting around waiting. Hey, won't someone tell me what the Bible says? No, they have an intellectual roadblock toward faith. And it is our job as God's children 
to help them address those objections, to help them work through those objections. And, and we're going to talk about that today. See, there's a lot of people in our world today just like John. And you probably know some of them. In fact, my guess is everyone here knows at least one person who has at least some intellectual objection to faith. And my other guess is that most of you who know people like that, you've kind of said, I'm just not qualified. I'm not smart enough to answer those kinds of questions. Some of you have basically thrown up your hands and said, well, um, God's just going to have to reach them through somebody else. So essentially what we're saying is God can't use me, which is ridiculous. God can use anyone he wants to. And right now he has brought you into that person's life to be an influence on them for good. And I've got two pieces of good news for you. Number one, what I've learned is that engaging people who have intellectual objections to faith, engaging them in conversation, praying for them, loving them, being in relationship with them and dialogue with them is good for your faith. It, the first time I ever experienced it was when in my college dorm room, I'd grown up in a small town where everybody either went to church or pretended they went to church went off to college where people were proud of their disbelief and had these conversations where I had questions thrown at me that I'd never considered and objections and arguments that never would have occurred to me. And it stretched me. It made me do my homework. It made me pray and depend upon God. And it will do the same for you. The other piece of good news I can give you is we have an excellent example in Acts chapter 17 of what we need to do. So if you would, turn with me to Acts 17, a perfect example of someone encountering people who are intellectually predisposed not to believe in Jesus and how he presented the gospel to them. And that's the apostle Paul. And you probably know Paul's story came from a devout Jewish background, a, a, a Pharisee serious about his uh, Judaism and, and very proud of his own self-righteousness, came to know Jesus Christ, came to repent of everything he was previously was proud of, and became the most sold-out follower of Jesus that ever was. And by the time we get to Acts 17, where we are today, Paul is the original Christian missionary. I mean, he is, he is going from town to town, village to village, all across Asia Minor and, and the region of the Middle East today, and essentially saying, Okay, I want to tell you about this guy named Jesus. Preaching the gospel of Jesus where it's never been heard before. None of us has ever done anything like that, I bet. But Paul is doing it. And he has this, he has this constant MO. He goes, when he gets to a new town, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he preaches to his fellow Jews. And then he goes out on, on Sunday and, and Sunday through Friday, he's in the village marketplace. He's, he's on the street corners or he's in a lecture hall. He's speaking to Gentiles and he's just seeing who is God going to call out? And once he's got enough people to form a church, he forms a church and then he moves on to the next town. And now he's in Athens. In Acts 17, he comes to Athens, which is unlike, completely unlike any of the towns Paul has preached in before. Because Athens, Greece, was the intellectual capital of the ancient world. I, I cannot even compare it to any place today. I mean, you look at, at you just can't compare it to you know, Harvard, New York, Paris, whatever. Athens was where the great philosophers were from. Athens was the city where you went to discuss the latest new ideas and basically to reason through them and say, does this philosophy hold water? Is it logically coherent? Boy, if you didn't have your stuff together, they would tear you apart in Athens, intellectually speaking. So here's Paul, and he's doing his thing Sabbath day in the, in the 
in the uh, synagogue, and then Saturday or Sunday through Monday, uh, Sunday through Friday. Man, I'm really bad at chronology today. The rest of the week, he's out in the agora of the marketplace preaching, basically doing street corner preaching. And somebody says, we need to take you to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus, that's a Greek word that means Mars Hill. The Greek god Ares, or Roman name Mars, was the god of war. And there was a hill in Athens where they used to gather in ancient times and they would discuss the business of the city. By the time of Paul, the Areopagus was the name for the city council that met in that place. By the way, here's a little trivia for you if you want to amaze your friends. The name of the Greek Supreme Court today is the Areopagus. There you go. That's for free. So they said, we need to bring you before the city council. We need for them to decide if it's okay for you to preach this stuff. And so Paul said, oh, absolutely. I mean, today we'd be all upset. Hey, man, you can't subpoena my preaching. Paul's like, hey, you want to hear me preach the gospel? Absolutely. This is an open door. So Paul goes. And he stands before these 30 learned men and all these bystanders. Because in Athens, this was sport, man. You didn't watch the Astros on TV. You didn't watch, you know, ultimate fighting. You didn't watch, you know, uh, American Idol. You went and watched people debate philosophy. Doesn't that sound fun? So Paul, no, you don't have to answer. So Paul is standing there in Mars Hill, and here's his presentation to these people. And I want you to notice how different Paul's presentation here is from what Peter said a couple of weeks ago. While Paul, uh, I'm sorry, verse 22 says, Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Let me just pause and say this real quickly. We hear the word ignorant and we hear an insult. Paul did not mean this in an insulting way, and they didn't take it in an insulting way. This is one of those lost in translation kind of things. Basically, Athens was the most religious city in the ancient world in terms of there were more temples, there were more shrines, there were more little, little altars all throughout the city than anywhere. There was an old saying in the ancient world that said, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. The Athenians, basically, their philosophy was, if there's a God out there, we want to make sure we've got Him covered because we want to make sure we are good to go with all the gods. They even had an altar set up to the unknown God. Their, their philosophy was, there might be a God we haven't discovered yet, and we don't want to offend Him, so we're going to make sacrifices to Him too, even though we don't know His name. So Paul takes that and says, you're, you're sacrificing to a God you don't know. Let me tell you about that God you don't know. All right, so picking up again in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring." 
Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, if you've read any of the New Testament, you know that Paul was not afraid to be confrontational. You know that Paul knew how to explain from the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ, and you know that Paul was not at all afraid to hurt someone's feelings. There was a moment in Galatians, in fact, when Paul called out Peter himself in front of all the apostles in all the church and made him repent. So Paul is not concerned with being popular. And yet notice his approach in this instance is very different. He doesn't quote scripture. He doesn't debate. He doesn't accuse. He handles it differently. Paul is approaching these people from an intellectual standpoint. Now, I need to say this real quickly. Some of you are put off by that term intellectual. You might say, well, I barely got out of high school. Or I graduated college, but that's been a long time ago. This has nothing to do with your level of education. Your ability to engage someone intellectually has nothing to do with how intelligent you think you are or aren't. What it comes down to is, if God is speaking into their heart, they need to know there's someone out there who loves them, a a human being who sees them as a brother or sister and can help them, can guide them, can show them the way. So what do we do? I mean, I'm hitting right at the root. For some of you, this is your son or daughter. For some of you, this is your sibling. For some of you, it's a close friend, a coworker that you know they've got questions you can't answer. You, you might invite them to church. They'll never come because they just think it's foolishness. What do we do? What can we learn from Paul here? First of all, I think we see in Paul, don't try to win an argument. Don't try to win an argument. Don't see it as a fight. Refuse to get involved in an argument with people like this. They may even want to debate, but that's not the point. Back in verse 16, it says that Paul, when he got to Athens and he saw all the idolatry there, uh, this is the NIV's version of it, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Greatly distressed. That's a polite English way of saying Paul was ticked off. Because remember, Paul was a Pharisee before he was a Christian. If there was one thing Pharisees hated, it was idolatry. So whatever sin you think is most offensive... That's how Paul felt about seeing all those idols, all those altars all around the city. And you would have expected him to get up in front of the Areopagus and say, listen, you people may throw me out of town, but I just got to tell you, you are fools. You are fools and you're going to hell and you deserve it. He could have done that. He could have blasted them, but he didn't. Instead, he starts off by complimenting them. He says, I see that you're very religious. And he wasn't being obnoxious. He wasn't being sarcastic. He's understanding these people, whatever, however wrong I believe their beliefs to be, their, their devotion, their religiousness comes from a place of, I want to please God. And that's a good thing. When we're dialoguing with people of other faiths, we can commend them for their devotion to what they believe to be true, even if we don't think it's true. 
Paul found common cause with him saying, hey, we both want the same thing. We want to be right in the eyes of God. We want to do that what is eternally good. He also quotes from Athenian poetry. Not once does he quote from Scripture in this presentation, but he quotes twice from Athenian poetry. When he says, we live and move, in him we live and move and have our being, that's a quote from a Greek poet. Uh, When he says, we all are God's offspring, that again is a quote from another Greek poet. We can trace those quotations to their original source. And here's what's interesting about that. That means Paul had done his homework. He, he had said, I'm going to Athens. I need to read up on what they're thinking and, and, and what makes them tick. He, he studied what they read. And what's interesting about that is the old Paul, back when he was a Pharisee, he would have sooner plunged a dagger into his chest or eat a BLT than read Athenian poetry, you know, because he was Jewish and with the bacon and all, right? Are you with me? Come on. So Paul would never have read their stuff before, but now he's conversant in their, in their literature. Why? Well, he explains it in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 22. And I, I want you to see this. This is, this is Paul's philosophy of ministry, 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 22. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I am myself am not under law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became one. I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, in all my relationships, whatever it takes, I'm going to do what I have to do to identify with them, to understand them, to know what makes them tick, I'm not going to see them as my enemy. I'm not going to see them as this ridiculous person who believes all this stuff that I hate. No, I'm going to say, what do I have to do to identify with you so you and I can dialogue, so I can tell you about this Christ who has done so much for me? I become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. If you would have asked Paul, is there anything you're willing, you're not willing to do to save a soul? He'd say, the only thing I'm not willing to do is anything Christ has specifically told me not to do. I'm not going to kill somebody. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to steal. But other than that, I will do whatever it takes to persuade. And by the way, by the way, since we live in this this polarized talk radio, uh, social media world where the political left hates the political right and the political right hates the political left, and if you disagree with somebody, you're supposed to put them on blast on Twitter and make fun of their views and you, you build your straw man out of their arguments and you knock them down to show everybody how smart you are. And that's all we ever do. If you listen to political talk shows today, they don't ever persuade anybody. They're just preaching to the choir. And that's the way we conduct ourselves in terms of dialogue today. And that's not what Paul did. We can't afford to do that. We can't afford to beat like the culture. Someone wrote it, someone wrote it long ago, and I, I wish I could remember where I read this because it's so true. They said, when you disagree with me, you can either insult me or persuade me, but you can't do both. See, part of the problem is when we disagree with somebody, we immediately jump into argument mode. What can I do to make you feel stupid for believing that way? And that doesn't persuade anybody. That gets them all defensive. Doesn't persuade anyone, just makes us feel good. So whoever it is 
that you disagree with. Hold your temper. Let go of your pride. Listen to what they're saying. Understand why they believe what they believe. It's not about winning an argument. Because guess what? I've never, ever, ever met anybody who has argued into the kingdom of God. I've never met anybody who came to Jesus because you called him a knucklehead. Or worse. Second, second thing we see from Paul. Communicate the truth clearly. Don't check out of the sermon right now because otherwise you'll go away saying, well, it's my job to make them like me. That's not your job. That's not really our goal. Certainly wasn't Jesus' goal because people don't crucify people they like. Yes, yes, we should care whether our personality is driving them away from Jesus, but ultimately it matters whether we communicate the truth, even the truth they disagree with passionately. And that's what Paul does. When you read his presentation, you get to verse 29, and there's this turn in what he's saying, and he gets to these three incredible spiritual truths. He says, first of all, you've got to repent. You have to repent. There's no other way. You have to turn away from your present course and turn back to God. There's coming a day of judgment. We're all going to stand before God and give an accounting for our lives. And Jesus was risen from the grave. Now, Paul knew. He was smart enough to know the people in that crowd, all of them, would have thought that repentance, judgment, and resurrection were all foolishness. That wasn't part of their belief system at all. And yet he shared it anyway. You know why? Because it's the gospel. And you haven't really witnessed to someone until you've shared the truth of the gospel. You may be in the process of building a relationship. You may be trying to represent Christ before them. Well, hallelujah, keep up the good work. But the goal is to make sure they know the saving truth. Otherwise, they may think, well, that's a really nice person. I'm glad they're my friend. They're no closer to the salvation that they need. Paul had one shot. He had to say it all on this one day. You and I, in our relationships with people who struggle intellectually with faith, we usually have longer period of time. So it's not like you have to tell them everything you know in one moment, but that should be the goal to get to the point where you can say, here's what I know, and here's why I know it. Third thing we get from Paul's presentation, be patient. You notice you notice the results of Paul's speech are not like the results of Peter's. At the end, in verse 34, it says a handful of people came to know Christ, including one of the members of the council. That's fantastic, but it doesn't compare to 3,000 in one day. And I'm telling you, that's not the way you do kingdom math. Because we don't know the final score at that particular moment. You know, what, you know how we know that Paul's presentation was successful? Because at the end of verse 32, it says that some sneered at him, but others said, we need to hear you further. See, that's the kind of success you look for with people who struggle intellectually with faith. You look for the opportunity to tell them the truth and for them to say, okay, let's talk about this some more. Let's talk about this another time. I've got more questions. All right, I'll bring it. Let's get together again. Let's talk about it. Okay, I've heard your questions. I have no idea how to answer them. Give me a moment. Give me, give me a week. I'll go talk to somebody. I'll go, I'll go pray through this. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go do an inter internet search, or I'll, I'll, I'll study a couple of books and see what I can come up with. That's how it works. It's not boom, and they're transformed. It's, it's, you've got to be invested for the long haul. That's what it takes, and it's probably taking a team effort too. Now, if you say, I, I'm just not smart enough for this. I can't do this then you're wrong. You can. It's, it's ultimately not 
based on whether you are a, a person who has a PhD or someone who quotes Shakespeare and does quadratic equations for fun. Yeah, if, if you have a background in philosophy or science or if you're a person who likes to debate, this is probably going to come more naturally to you than others. But all of us, all of us are equipped to do this. And let me tell you why. Kind of a long story, but I, and I wish I had more details for this story. I read this in the newspaper uh, a few years ago. I wish I'd written all the details down, but back then I didn't know I was going to use it as an illustration. So there. So here's, here, here's what I got. Man was found, man in his mid to late 50s, uh, beaten and unconscious, uh, stripped of most of his clothes, all of his identification gone, unconscious in an alley in a major city somewhere. When he revived, he had no memory left. He, he couldn't remember who he was or where he was from. They thought it would come back, but it didn't. For, for years, this guy drifted from place to place. Meanwhile, this is a national news story. I mean, every so often you get this update. Hey, remember this guy they found in such and such city, and, and he still doesn't know who he is? Does anybody know who he is? Are you his brother? Are you his, his child? Are you his parent? Are you his cousin? Anybody? No one ever came forward. And finally, there were, there were several people who sort of adopted him and tried to help him over the years. And finally, one of them did some really, really good detective work and found out that this guy had a surviving brother that lived in another state far away. And they, were, they got him back together with his, with his brother and his brother's family, cousins and, and nephews and nieces. So happy ending. But when I hear that story, I think to myself, your friends and my friends and the people we know who don't know Christ, what they are. It's just children of God who've forgotten who they are. They're just children of God who don't know where they came from. And they've got a heavenly father who loves them, who weeps for them, who longs for their return. And we're their brothers and sisters, and it's our job to reach out for them. See, the really sad thing about that story is that guy had a family somewhere, and they weren't even looking. If they would have been looking for him, they would have found him because they would have seen the news. It would have gotten back to them somehow. It took years for him to get home because nobody was looking your neighbor, your nephew, your coworker, your acquaintance that has these intellectual objections to faith. Some of them may call themselves atheists, but not most. Some of them may be younger than you, but not all. Some of them may be highly educated, but not all. No matter what their condition is, they need to come home. And you're their brother, you're their sister. If this was your literal blood brother or sister, would you stop at anything? To convince them? Would you be patient with them? Absolutely. Would you, would you put up with them arguing with you, insulting you? Sure you would. you would. You would love them and love them and love them until they came home. Because the really, really good news I've got for you is when you and I were lost and, and didn't know who we were and just wandering through this world, our God came for us. He came in the form of a man named Jesus Christ and died on a cross. Essentially, he was buying our ticket to get home with his own life. And then he didn't stop there. He sent his Holy Spirit into the hearts of people who are already part of his family. Because guess what? I guarantee you, every one of you here who says, I'm a Christian, every one of you can say, I'm a Christian today because someone shared it with me. My parents, my coach, my teacher, my neighbor, my friend, that person was sent by God. His Holy Spirit led them to you and through them spoke truth into your heart that brought you home. And now, and now you and I have the opportunity to be that same person, that, that brother or sister that brings that child home. 
See, people with intellectual objections often tend to see Christians as the enemy. And they've got good reason for it. That's how we treat them. Because that's how we've been taught to treat people who disagree with us. They need to see something different. They need to see a long-lost brother or sister who says, I'm going to love you. I may not be as smart as you. I'm going to love you anyway in a way you've never been loved before. And I'm not going to stop until you come home. 